0: Hey everyone, thanks for being here. We've been on a journey through the gospel according to Luke, and last week Pastor Omer taught on the question of Jesus' identity and the high calling we all have in light of Jesus' identity. And then he referenced the follow-up verses in chapter 9, which are this week's passage, while saying, quote, This is actually the hardest part of of confessing." confessing that Jesus is the Messiah. It's living up to this calling. And I'm sure many of us are painfully aware of all of the ways in which we fall short of this calling. You know, our church exists, as our mission statement says, to inspire people to live the way of Jesus. In our teachings and gatherings and in our worship and in our liturgy, we are striving for the goal of inspiring all of us to actually transform our behaviors, our attitudes, our decisions and choices so that our lives, all of our lives, align more and more each day with the way that Jesus has provided for us and what Omer said last week resonates deeply with my experience of being painfully aware of all the ways in which I fall short of this calling this has been a consistent theme in my life and as we continue through this gospel account we're going to focus in on Jesus is saying to his followers take up your cross and in considering this teaching I feel, once again, an overwhelming sense of how I fall short of this every day. However, I hope that by the end, we will all feel inspired. In line with Omer's follow-up exhortation to respect the struggle. Respect the struggle and find it absolutely worthwhile, even if we come up short. So let's start by reading our passage for today and do our best to discover what the heck Jesus was talking about. Remember from just a few verses before, the question that was posed was the identity of Jesus. Who do the crowds say that I am? After Peter's confession or rather proclamation that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that they were all expecting to come and fulfill their hopes and expectations of radical transformation, Jesus gives them an order and a command Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 21. He sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone, saying, The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then he said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. When I first became a Christian, I bought myself a pewter cross necklace. Now, in the culture that nurtured my baby faith, this was a beautiful expression of my bravery for witnessing for Jesus in public. People would know just by seeing the symbol around my neck that I was a Christian and my community applauded my courage and my faithfulness to Jesus and my commitment to never be ashamed of Jesus. I remember these themes as being super important to me and I wore that cross, ironically, with a fair sense of pride. And should anyone make fun of me? Well... That was my cross to bear. (laughs) In my early years as a Christian, this experience was formative for how I held my faith and how it shaped and molded the faith to which I adhered. And it was incredibly encouraging to see I was not the only one. Crosses were everywhere. They were on top of the buildings of churches. They were on the covers of Bibles. They were tattooed on the super devout, and they were even being referenced symbolically in famous sermons that point out the presence of God in natural elements, such as the cross in the cellular adhesion molecule, the laminin protein, the glue of the human body, or the cross in the Whirlpool Galaxy, way out in space. Go ahead, search the terms cross, laminin, and Whirlpool Galaxy, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Seeing the cross represented everywhere was confirmation that God was true and I was really saved. Later on, I learned that the cross was an execution stake. It was a symbol of death. And I began to meet other kinds of Christians who took issue with those Christians making so much out of the cross as if we were hanging an injection needle or the electric chair around our necks. To them... That kind of jewelry was the glorification of a brutal God, a perverse theology of torture and bloodlust. The cross to them was the worst part of the Christian story, and drawing attention to it was a kind of heresy that needed to be done away with, as the cross did not elevate God's love, compassion, and radical mercy. Now, with this kind of inter-family debate, it is understandable that there persists a significant level of confusion around Jesus' teachings here. And if you're a little put off or perplexed by what taking up your cross means, you're in good company. Honestly, what the heck is he talking about here? What does he mean, take up your cross? So to try and get at this, I'll propose that we first begin with the question, what did the cross mean? And then we can get to the question, what does the cross mean to us? And the first thing we discover is that historically, the cross was primarily an instrument of shame and humiliation. You don't have to do much historical digging to learn that humans are a brutal species, We have concocted countless ways of torturing and killing people for as long as we have historical records. And just like today, those methods change with technology and cultural developments. And so somewhere in the late half of the first millennium BC, it is believed the Assyrians or the Babylonians, maybe both of them together, invented crucifixion or hanging someone on a stake in the ground. Several hundred years later, the Romans being the ever-resourceful and innovative people they were, mastered this technique to extend the suffering for up to three days. Appallingly, crucifixion has actually been used as a form of execution throughout history since then, and even as recent as World War I in 1915. And Some believe it is still practiced today in some countries. Back to the first century. While some interpreters have focused on the pain and torture of the cross, the word excruciating does come from the Latin ex cruce, or out of the cross. That's true. While some have focused on the pain and torture, the the goal of crucifixion was not actually death. Death was the result. The goal was public shame and humiliation. Public shame and humiliation. Now the Romans had multiple execution methods, but crucifixion was exclusively used to make a mockery out of you and what you stood for. In fact, it appears that Rome did not crucify criminals of the upper class. Crucifixion was apparently exclusively reserved specifically for the lower classes of society. To be crucified was not just to suffer a consequence but was to suffer debasement, disgrace, dishonor, and again, public shame and humiliation. In fact, we don't have many literary references to crucifixion from ancient Rome or Greece, and apparently it is because writers of antiquity seemed to avoid the subject altogether, both out of disgust and horror, but also because it was below them. And so to even speak of such things was to demean oneself. And if that's the case, what's fascinating is we do actually run into writings about early Christianity from pagan sources and we frequently see references to crucifixion. For example, the 1st century Roman historian Tacitus, who reporting on Christians from uh, to the empire writes Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty During the reign of Tiberius at the hands of the procurator Pontius Pilate. Some have suggested that these references to crucifixion, when discussing early Christianity, are there for the express purpose of communicating how debased and dishonorable this early movement was in the eyes of Rome. And so we have in the historical record evidence both of the reputation of Christianity amongst the Roman elite, directly related to the meaning of crucifixion as an instrument of public shame and humiliation. And this leads us to one specific aspect of crucifixion that is relevant to our Jesus' teaching, and that is the practice of carrying one's cross. We have a general understanding that after someone was tried and then sentenced, they were frequently flogged. The number of times they were flogged was in accordance and proportion to their crime. And then they were forced to carry the cross beam of the cross called the patibulum that they were to die on. Now, why would Rome make you carry your cross? What's the purpose? What's the point of that? Well, remember, crucifixion was not primarily about death, but rather about shame and humiliation. And so the carrying of the patibulum was political theater. It was for show. This was not a mere transportation function, you would carry your cross through the crowded public streets to maximize visibility, maximize exposure, maximize the saturation of disapproval, condemnation, ridicule, derision, contempt, sneering, scorn, and taunting heaped upon you by the crowded public streets. Generally speaking, because those who were out and about were middle and upper-class people, those who would not be subjected to crucifixion because of their societal position, these people would not be compassionate. They would rather be hostile because they believe that you deserve this punishment. And so, while grotesque to some degree, it was believed that there was some virtue in this humiliation for keeping the peace of Rome secure. And so in addition to the physical pain you would endure the public shame of your fellow citizens. We've mentioned before the Alexaminos graffito, a piece of Roman graffiti discovered on a wall in Rome dating somewhere to the 2nd century AD. It is a mockery of a guy by the name of Alexaminos who is, quote, worshiping his god. Which is a depiction of a crucified person with a horse head on it. So, even for the next two centuries, Jesus and his followers were being mocked. Now, knowing all of that, why in the world would Jesus teach, command even to take up your cross, to carry it, if you are to be his disciple, a follower after him? And I would suggest there's even this brilliant nuance here, which is to take up and carry your cross, which is a specific reference to the carrying of the patibulum, the cross beam through the crowded streets to be mocked and ridiculed. If we take into consideration all of what we discussed, the social and political meaning, the class hierarchy, the ultimate aim and goal of crucifixion, and Jesus' command to carry or take up our own cross, I think we can reasonably conclude that to carry a cross To take up a cross by one's own volition is to persistently, daily identify oneself with the most shamed, the most dishonored and disenfranchised of society. It is to renounce our position and associate ourselves with those in our society who are shamed and humiliated. It is to be found amongst the poor and the wretched of the earth. To take up our cross, is to feel and suffer with the objects of society's contempt. Martin Hengel, in his compendium, The Cross of the Son of God, in his section on crucifixion writes, the earliest Christian message of the crucified Messiah demonstrated the solidarity of the love of God with the unspeakable suffering of those who were tortured and put to death by human cruelty. In Mark chapter 15, we see this exemplified quite literally. When Jesus was being crucified, the Roman soldiers were preparing to hang him on the cross. In accordance with the checklist of crucifixion, they flogged him, mocked him, stripped him, and began to lead him out to crucify. And when they, the Roman soldiers, Compelled a passerby who is coming in from the country to carry his cross, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. We don't know much about this person. In fact, we just read everything we do know about him in the biblical narrative. But we know he was African. Cyrene is on the north shore of Libya, country north in northern Africa. Is most likely Jewish as his name was Shimon, Simon, and he was a father of known individuals in the community, and so there is a level of social dignity. He was well respected in the community. In addition, he was most likely middle class or higher because he not only had the money to travel, but was also wealthy enough to afford a proper burial. How do we know that? Well, in 1941, archaeologists most likely found his burial box in the Kidron Valley, just east of Jerusalem. The inscription here reading both the names, Simon and Alexander, father and son. The inscription here actually has a fun typo, which you can ask me about later. And this Simon picked up and carried the patibulum, the crossbeam of Jesus, walking through the streets in solidarity and company with the one who was being insulted shamed and humiliated, Simon bearing the full weight of that scorn. And in this act, Simon fulfilled the command of Jesus to take up your cross and follow. And from everything that we can tell, Christians continued this legacy throughout the ancient Roman Empire. For as converts of Christianity came from various classes and social segments, followers of Jesus began identifying with and living in solidarity with those who were despised, forgotten, and left aside by the world and culture around them. Now, for some time, the symbol of early Christianity was the fish, as in the fishermen who left everything to follow Jesus. However, sometime in the late first and early second centuries, within a 100 years of Jesus's ministry, Christians began writing down and copying these sacred and precious teachings of Jesus. This manuscript is the section in Luke chapter 14, where in verse 27 it reads, whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. If you look closely at the manuscript, however, you'll find something very interesting. The scribes who wrote this manuscript created a new symbol out of Two of the Greek letters that make the word cross in that verse. That symbol is the tau and rho, respectively in English the T and P, and when transposed on top of each other, they look like someone who is being crucified on a cross. Scholars understand that sometime in this development, the main symbol that identified the heartbeat of Christianity shifted from the fish to the cross. And here is early evidence of the importance of this teaching for influencing that change. Which is why 2000 years later I went and bought a pewter cross for me to wear around my neck, and why there are crosses on Bibles and crosses on churches because not only not only did early Christians identify themselves with the lowly And live in solidarity with the disenfranchised, but they were able to transform a weapon of destruction and humiliation into a symbol of victory, into a symbol of life, into a clarion call for love and compassion and unity. In other words, the cross, what was once an execution stake, became a symbol of the hope that things can change. And this, my friends, is what I would suggest to you is the fullness of this brilliant teaching, to take up your cross and follow Jesus. As we live in solidarity with those who have been shamed and humiliated, those who are in the words of Howard Thurman, the disinherited by the powers that be, We transform those oppressive systems of shame and humiliation and we humiliate them and in turn create out of them symbols of love and grace and compassion and redemption and rescue. And we carry that symbol around with us to remind us of the hope that things can actually change. My friends, do systems and symbols of oppression exist today? Has even the cross been used as a symbol of shame? Absolutely. Has the word Christian or evangelical been used as a term of derision and contempt? Yes. And are there other symbols and systems in our culture that evoke humiliation? Sure. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Stand in solidarity with the victims of those systems. Identify yourself with those who've suffered under those symbols, with the downtrodden, and remind yourself that through living the way of Jesus, by following Him, by being His disciple, those systems and those symbols can absolutely change. As we come to communion, we are reminded of another system of humiliation. And that was the economic manipulation of provisions in the Roman Empire, part of the pan et circuses, or bread and entertainment theme that was made popular through the Hunger Games series of recent years. Food and amusement were designed to keep Roman citizens compliant and in good order. And yet even here we see a different symbolism in the bread and juice as reminders again of the cross, of Jesus' association with the undesirables of society. And so as we take communion together, we do so today with our hearts and minds compelled to be in solidarity with those who have been left behind or are oppressed or are suffering injustice. And we rejoice in the hope of what communion stands for and represents the transformation and the change. For in the night in which he was betrayed, Our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All the lowly, the disheartened, the disenfranchised, the left behind, all, the scorned, the mocked, the spat upon, the shamed, all of you, the humiliated and the downtrodden, all are welcome.